podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This episode of Red Inca is on Joe Root's captaincy, so I got on someone who's been following him every step of the way. Rory Dollard, cricket correspondent at Pierre Media. We talk about the narrative, England's lack of batting, the cheeky chappy persona, his best period in charge, the many obstacles he had, what his strengths and weaknesses were in captaincy, and how the blazer changes the people who wear it. Rory, you and I spend a lot of time moaning about things in the corner together. Although we haven't for the last couple of years because of stuff. I figure that the narrative turning on Joe Root would have been something that you and I would have spent a lot of time arguing or in furious agreement with. Once the narrative went on Joe Root, I felt like it was inevitable, no matter kind of what happened afterwards, that he was going to leave the captaincy. Yeah, I think the fact that Joe Root left just before the appointment started coming above his head was probably telling. It probably, when he got back from the West Indies, it it suggests that if he saw the writing on the wall, if he felt the mood music, if he heard the jungle drums, however you want to say it, we spoke to him on and off the record at the end of the West Indies series. He appeared to be absolutely committed. He was, you know, four to the floor to continue in the job. He had a plan. He had an idea of how it was going to go. He wasn't even talking about the short term. He was looking at medium to long term. You know, after a guy who's done the job 60 odd times more than anyone else in English history, it sounded like he was looking for three figures. You know, he he likes to get centuries, Joe Root. It sounded to me like he was eyeing a century of appearances as captain, but it does sound like he got back to England and got back home and and had a change of heart and felt like probably the narrative, as you say, was moving away from him. and, And maybe he felt that it was going to be taken out of his hands by one of the people above his head, whether that be the new director of cricket, the new head coach. And personally, I didn't want to see Joe Root get sacked, and, and he probably felt similarly. So that's, so that's how it played out, and and now we get to see the rest of it. But there's going to be a lot of discussion, as there already has been, about his captaincy record and, and what it means and what kind of a captain he was. And, and I'm not absolutely sure that I know the answer to any of those questions. It doesn't feel like a dead settled issue to me. Perfect, because that's... More or less where I am. So let's start with this. During his captaincy, he averaged 46.44, which considering it was a great bowling era is a very good number. The next best batter was Alistair Cook, who averaged 38 (laughs) in that period. Then it was Stokes at 37. Beyond him, Butler at 32, Vince at 30, Rory Burns the same, Bairstow and Denley on 29. Now, you can be a pretty good captain, Rory. I don't know how you're going to win test matches if you can't find a second person who can average over 40 with the bat. Yeah, exactly right. You know, we look at, I guess, the the measuring stick for England in in modern times has been that 10-11 team that won in Australia under Strauss. My God, that top six, that top seven. Mm. Gee whiz, Joe Root would kill for for any of them. You know, if he could have got one of those guys in the team, one of those top five, say, he'd have been in clover, really. And... The lack of runs ultimately just hobbled this England team for a number of years and they had superhero moments. Ben Stokes pulled them out of jail and occasionally they bowled teams out for nothing. But they didn't 
typically win games the proper way, did they? They didn't get a good, solid first innings on the table. They didn't get chases of 170. They, they, they either chased something stupid or they pulled the game out of the fire. It, they just didn't know how to put a proper test match together and that lay on the batting. And I suppose you could say if Joe Root was in the job five years and they couldn't find a single batter who could settle in that team, that's a knock on county cricket. Is it a knock on on the regime? You know, were they too soft? Were they not hard enough on people? Were they too hard on people? Did they drop them too easily or too lightly? You know, there probably is a question to answer for the regime. If you can't find a single guy to emerge, something isn't settling, is it? But but the, the raw materials, if you look at those names we've got versus the names of 10 years previous, the raw materials aren't too hot. Well, I mean, the fact that Denley's there, right? And I know... You- you went from being Denley's biggest critic to being his biggest fan. I was the original Denley guy, you know. I think you started a trend, even if you did it ironically <laughs> through gritted teeth. So the fact he's on that list, he's there with, with other good players, tells you how. Listen, the, 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 fact of the fact of the matter is that over the past 12 months, I have had moments where I've thought, should we be picking Denley again? And people think I'm in a dangerous, you know, interventions necessary and stuff. But... <laughs> I've thought that. I've thought, actually, was he an option? You know, and, and it's not, it's, there's no good picking out individual people because it's more about the wider issue. That, yeah. Mm. And someone like Roy Burns is such a confusing one because over that period of time, and certainly in the top order, he's looked at times like the safest pair of hands, maybe, or the one who was most likely to get you a score in between the inevitable. But he just became premium duck hunter. You had, a, you had an opening bat who you thought was your senior guy. who You kind of expected to get a duck every three innings at one point. Whew, it's been a rough road. Okay, so we've done the batting. During Joe Root's era, they struggled to take wickets overseas. They averaged 33 with the ball away from home. India was 26, Pakistan 29, New Zealand 31, so all way better. South Africa and Australia were around the same mark as England, but slightly better. When you look at how many wickets Broad and Anderson take away from home, I think it's, what, 6.2 wickets combined in their career. And I think it's the same number over Joe Root's captaincy. They don't take enough wickets away from home. And not that you could ever take enough wickets away from home if you've got no batters, but Mm. they still don't take enough wickets away from home. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things, really, that you look back and you say, could England have done better? Well, I think Root was a little slow on the uptake about Mark Wood. Mm-hmm. we can look back now and say he was the standout bowler in the Ashes. And I don't know how much or how long that was part of the plan for. He was in and out of the team. Stokes picked him when, in that one game that he was captain when Root was on paternity leave, the only game he missed. And that was seen as a surprise. You know, that was the game Broad got dropped for when he spoke in the Skypod and was very angry. And that was a bit of a surprise call. And then and Wood dropped out straight after that. I do think England was slow on the uptake under, under Root's captaincy about Mark Wood and what he could offer them. If when he comes to sort of reflect on his captaincy, I wonder if he'll wonder that he should have moved mountains to get Adil Rashid settled in that team because we saw the transformative effect Rashid had on England's white ball team. He just locked down a position, a really important position in that team. And he was a banker for that entire World Cup cycle and beyond. Well, when they had Moen Ali in the side, right, Moen was not a particularly good bowler against the tail. Right, he's going to bowl you the grimy spinners overs. Mm. Adil Rashid, if he's the fifth bowler, because you've now got Moe and Ali in the side, and they had Wokes, they had many all-round options. Stokes as well. It actually kind of made sense to have Adil Rashid in the side as a, almost a tail end specialist. I mean, Stuart McGill. We talk about Stuart McGill. You have a look at his record against the top order. Didn't do particularly mm. well. Absolutely destroyed tail enders. 
I don't yeah. see any reason why Adil Rashid couldn't have been similar over a long period of time. And just the odd magic ball as well. You, just the fact that he's got this ripper googly that just goes hard. It, you look back on Rashid's test career and it's a, it doesn't make any sense because I know he's had a shoulder problem and that affected his availability at times, but ultimately I feel like he turned his back on red ball cricket not because of his shoulder really. It was because he never felt that was his home. He never felt entirely settled. He wasn't confident and, and and I just think looking at England's lack of wicket taking options and how they struggled on, on flat ones if there's one bowler that Root might look back and go should have got more tests out of him Rashid is probably the one because if this podcast is about captaincy and, and reviewing his captaincy that kind of thing you know he lacked Graham Swan in terms of modern day England captains when we tally him up with, you know we have mentioned the batting been pretty shoddy and, and it was for, for large periods but that 10-11 team that I sort of hark back to as the barometer, I just think, I always think Graham Swan was the most important person in it. England had other batters who, maybe not as good as Peterson, Cook, etc., Trot, but they had other people who would have got them into the game. They, they had no alternative to Swan. Tre- mm. Treadwell was, was the answer to that question. And he was exceptional. He bowled tight, he held an end, he attacked when the ball spun, he was always in the game. He was a bit of a fighter and a competitor. He had, he had loads and loads of skills. Good slip catcher, by the way, which is another thing that's held England back in the last few years. His slip catching's been poor. And I look back and I think, would Joe Root be judged a good captain if you added one player into his team and that player was Graham Swan? And I wonder if he might have done, actually. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it would have held them in games and series at times when they couldn't do that, right? There were just times when you were just looking and going, there's nothing for them to do. Basically, if Ben Stokes doesn't take the two wickets in and over here yeah. uh, when for 40 overs we haven't had a wicket. So, yeah, I totally get that with Swan. Let's look at a couple of other things that I think it's worth mentioning too. Towards the back end of his career, which to be fair, which is the bit he got fired for, the team clearly pivoted towards the white ball, which means that they were trying to win a World Test Championship while actively saying they weren't trying to win a World Test Championship because yeah. they were resting players for a key test series that they were in front of. Yeah, I think that speaks to one of the other criticisms. I'm kind of free and easy with the criticisms, I think. But um, I think I generally, I think I have a pretty better opinion of Joe Root as a captain because I think circumstance wasn't kind to him, and and I think the white ball reset, which was the old untrendy version of the red ball reset, put him on the back foot a bit. COVID was a a disaster really for a captain because the players were having a horrible time at points. Ahmedabad, they always speak about a, tight, a period in Ahmedabad that was awful. England were playing so much as well, weren't they? So England specifically. Yeah, they just played continually. Yeah. yeah, and they were, and the bioscure bubble, that was England's innovation. And that just meant, I mean, you had players, young, fresh, excited players like Ollie Pope talking about living on the ground in Old Trafford and sitting out on the balcony looking at the pitch he just got a low score on. And, Joe had to manage a lot of those things and his soft skills were excellent. You know, he, he was a super temperament for the job. And I get criticism when I say this, whenever I sort of try and give him a rap as a good character for captain, useless at bowling changes, all that, you get people firing back at you. But it's important. It's not, you can't have mm, part of the intemperate job. people. And cricket more than any other sport, the captain, when you're leading a, an England football match, you're away for three or four days. When you're England tour, you, you could be away two months. And those soft skills, the communication, the malleability and, and leading a group of people as much as cricketers is, is very important. And he was excellent at it and remains excellent at it. And he, and he didn't ever really lose his cool. So I think ultimately 
if you review his captaincy and, and what kind of captain he was, I think you'd say he lacked a strong voice. I don't know what his opinion was on those restings. I don't know what his opinion was on the bubbles. I don't know what his opinion was on, on actually dropping Broden Anderson for the West Indies. It happened under his watch and he spoke about it, but he didn't shed a great deal of light on it. I think he ultimately, despite the fact that he was tenured for five years, the most experienced or the most prolific England captain, I think people didn't know what his captaincy voice was or his captaincy identity. And I think the fact that he ultimately coughed up some of those key players at key times because they were rested with a view on the next thing. Sometimes it felt like it was the selector who was resting them. Sometimes, you know, you got the impression Owen Morgan had a bit of influence. There never seemed to be Joe Root getting pissed off about it. I'm sure he was, but it didn't ever come across like that. And you could see Owen Morgan never misses a trick to tell you when he hasn't had a full strength squad. You hear, you know about it. You absolutely know about it. Whereas Joe Root almost wore those punches is a little bit too lightly as test captain at times. Well, the selection thing is quite interesting. So, you know, we've gone through kind of the major parts of the game and where he didn't have the, the people that he, he needed for, you know, for many different reasons. One of the funny things was, do you remember that period where in the space of 10 tests, England had a really good wicket keeper and they picked three other wicket keepers and they, <laughs> they literally like, and this sort of plays into what you just said then. I just can't imagine another captain accepting that, whereas Joe Root kind of, I don't remember him even being upset, but it was farcical. Like, they had specialist wicketkeepers. They had Butler as a specialist number seven. Ollie mm -hmm. Pope had the gloves. The whole thing made no sense over a 10-test match period. And it pretty much... I mean, which, this is about Joe Root, but it pretty much ruined Besto's career looking back on it. Maybe he'd already mm. been worked out and maybe we're being a bit, you know, we're, we're putting these things together because they happened at the same time. But it does kind of look like Besto's career was ruined by the fact all those things that they did. And Joe Root, again, didn't seem to really man up to that or stand up to that or talk about it. Yeah, I think whether it was an abundance of sort of magnanimous feelings, but he, he never threw anyone under the bus. He had Stuart Broad can be difficult, you know, I guess, and that's a good thing. He's it's one of the reasons why he's really, really good. Owen Morgan can be spiky. Ed Smith had big cards on himself. He was surrounded a lot of the time by these people and, and he never sort of got in the dirt with them on, on that level. He was always pretty chilled about the fact that he was England's test captain and that he had all these competing interests. And, he, and, and he's a guy who's at times shelved his T20 ambitions. Mm. People, you know, some people might think he, he didn't, have a great prospect in, in T20. Maybe don't think he would have got great IPL contracts and that kind of thing. But there's no doubt that he hasn't pursued options. As a name, he would get offers and deals and and he would have had chances to expand his T20 game. And he is always, always, to the detriment sometimes of his personal development, focused and, and highlighted the, the test team because that's his thing that he was custodian of. And he felt that quite keenly, I think. He, he kind of he wore that with a badge of pride. But having taken that approach in his own game, and his own career, he didn't seem to demand it of others in quite the same way. And, and maybe time's moved on. Maybe the test captain doesn't hold all the trump cards in that, in the way that they once would. But I wonder if he might have fought a little harder for his legacy, given where he's now. So, what is his best run as captain? I think there's only one real great run that he had as captain, which was... At the beginning of COVID, when we were in South Africa, they came back from 1-0 mm. down. Wasn't a very good South African team, but you're still 1-0 down away from home. 
They beat a West Indies, who I thought played really well in England that summer. They beat a Pakistan, who I didn't think played as well. And then they travelled to Sri Lanka, who's a poor team, and they beat them. The problem with that is all those teams are middling to lower ranked. Yes, there's two away wins, but there's no other point in his career where England ever got on any kind of a roll. Like, I kept going, oh, maybe I'm missing one. I'll go back through the record. That's it. That's pretty much the only time that he went on any kind of a roll with the England team. Within that period, when England won in Sri Lanka, going back to South Africa, then Sri Lanka, then Chennai, the first test in India in Chennai, I think they won, I guess it was six tests in a row overseas, and then a decent English summer split the two winners there. That was the point where his captaincy looked really rock solid and watertight because he was winning at home, which England are supposed to do, and he had the materials to do that. He had the seamers, the Bron Anderson walks, all that stuff, and then he did enough with the bat to make that home record stand. The bar was always winning away, and he did it in South Africa, he did it in Sri Lanka, and he just started to do it in India, which would have been the icing on the cake. And then, obviously, Aksar Patel and the pitches went square, and it was a two-day test match on a spinning pitch where England picked a dozen seamers. (laughs) But there was a point there where England looked to be cracking it overseas, and he was central to that. I think of, of those series, the South Africa one was a really good testament to his captaincy because they turned up in Centurion all got ill with what some of them think might have been early Covid was Mm. just before that time but they played a test match where it was a conveyor belt on and off the pitch because the 11 who were fit enough to get out on the park couldn't stay on the park for all that long and they had to sub back and forward because it was a in the most literal sense it was a shit show And then, you know, they lost that test and then they're right up against it. You know, it's a Christmas tour. Games come thick and fast. South Africa can get on a roll. And they pulled that round. They won really nicely in that series and they were strong and and they brought Don Bess in. And particularly in that series, that was the time when it felt like maybe it was turning into Root's team. And and that sounds funny because he'd probably, probably been captain for two or three years, maybe even three years. But they brought Bess into the team who came straight back out of nowhere, really, and performed brilliantly in Cape Town. Dom Sibley was looking like he had the steel and the nerve for test cricket and Stokes was impressed by him. Pope got his century that we've been waiting for him to almost deliver on the promise we saw there. He got a lovely hood, but I think it was Port Elizabeth. He looked great. They had a young team who were brought through by Root. And I suppose his previous successes were on the back of people like Moeen and, and Adil Rashid in Sri Lanka when they whitewashed Sri Lanka. He was winning with other people's players and in South Africa... He was winning with a team that was starting to look like his. Zach Crawley came into the team around then as well. Mm. And that's when I think probably looking back, that's when the t- things seemed brightest for him because things were going well. Mark Wood also important in that series. But it just felt like not only were England winning, they were winning away and they were winning with a team that had his fingerprints on it. And for whatever reason, most of those players have talked about fell away. Sibley fell away, Best fell away. Pope, God knows what happened. Hopefully we haven't hit the end of that story. But that was the most optimistic phase of his captaincy, I guess, and the one he'll look back on definitely with the most fondness, I would have thought. So their best win you talked about before was probably the win in Chennai, right? Where at the end of that run, which I think it kind of has to be included in that run just because it felt like they were on a bit of a roll. After that, it obviously fell apart and has continued to fall apart. When it got out of control, it felt like he didn't really have a clear vision for what the England test team was going to be. That's why we've had the Red Bull reset, right? Because they didn't really Mm. feel that they had that. And 
it always felt to me, and I think you touched on it before, really, a little bit, especially with Broad and Anderson, I always felt they thought of Root as a junior. There wasn't anything that screamed leadership about him. I remember when, when they were playing, was it 17, 18, when he was going to be captain, Steve Smith was going to be captain, and I was like, if you're a senior player in that team and you look at those two as captains, mm-hmm. you must be thinking to yourself, come on now. They're not natural big voices. And, you know, you can say that that's not what leadership is and be completely right. But I think if you're a, a jaded old cricketer, you might feel a little bit different. Just felt like he never had a plan to pull it back from that point. And that seemed to grate on Broad and Anderson, especially as they were ever increasingly left out of test matches. Yeah, I remember I interviewed uh, Graham Swan when Root got the captaincy and he said uh, Root's the annoying little brother. You know, they were like, he said, he said they've given the captaincy to my annoying little brother and he said it in a good way. But that sort of speaks to, to how you're saying. I would think maybe he should have lent into that a bit more and lent into the fact that he was that guy because he was such a... The cheeky chappy. Yeah, that's the old thing, isn't it? <laughs> People say cheeky chappy, but he was, he was... He was Bullion, and he was he was a little bit narky on the pitch. I imagine he was horrible to play against when he was a kid, I would have thought. Because he managed to annoy Jaya Wardner at a test match in Headingley once. I remember like Jaya Wardner volunteered to do press because he wanted to bark about Root and sort of sledging him and stuff. And I wonder at the time if when he started, if he could keep up and be be a cheeky captain, you know, like be a a young, vibrant, slightly snarky that could be the identity he could build the team around. But actually he became the opposite, he became a quite statesmanlike and and Mm. sensible and maybe too sensible maybe too conservative small c on a stress (laughs) (laughs) and i suppose i wonder if in his latter days now and in his next chapter it was in england cricket i wonder if he'll go back to be a bit more fun and over five years captain england has chiseled those edges off him a little bit well that's a fair question because it's not a cheeky chappy position (laughs) baz mccullum could probably have done that in New Zealand and everyone would be like, oh, that's fair enough, that's Baz. And there are other, you know, Shahid Afridi was Pakistan's yeah. captain. England captaincy is, you know, what was Giles Clark's big thing about Alistair Cook? Comes from that, you know, the right, the, kind, the of kind, family, right yeah. kind of family. There is a sort of perception of that on it. It did feel like it dulled down the fun bits of Joe Root, even in, in his game. I think he's one of the most algorithmic cricketers I've ever seen. He literally, he goes, I know how to hit a single to this area, so I'm going to hit the single there until they fill that spot. Then I'm going to move across and I'm going to hit the single here. Mm. I'm only going to bowl to left-handers because I'm only good against left-handers, right? And when I do bowl against right-handers, I'm going to bowl leg spin. Everything about him was was very much like that. But I also wonder just how much of that was just the wearing of the fact that it's a weird position to have if you're the cheeky younger brother. Yeah. I think there is even, I don't know, if it, as soon as they wear the blazer, at Lords, yeah. they, you know, they look different, don't they? And even when Stokes did it, when Root had his baby, he didn't look quite like Ben Stokes anymore because they shove him in a blazer. And it's a funny thing, is it? It's one of those throwbacks of English cricket that it it does seem to weigh a little bit heavier on on the shoulders. And I don't know. It's, it's I suppose it's like that thing where if someone gets picked from the white ball setup into the Test match, and we all as journalists, well, oh, how are you going to prove you're a Test cricketer? You know, like like it's a di- alien species. Butler was maybe one of those ones who was forever at pains to look like a test cricketer rather than be one, you know. And yeah. and, and there's a bit of that in the captaincy with England sometimes, isn't it? People want to appear as though they are statesmanlike or they want to appear like they are leaders rather than leading sometimes. Mm. And that is probably a problem that hasn't been solved because whoever gets the job, unless it is somebody who plucked out of county cricket, doesn't seem likely, they're going to have to be a captain for the first time. 
really, uh, certainly at that level. And then they have to almost wear the clothes of a captain before they know how to do it. And it, I don't know, it sometimes can feel like they're playing a role, can't it? I think we have to mention tactics. You mentioned them very early on, but I don't think anyone who covers English cricket over that period, or even casual fans, would say that he's a genius tactician. He's not MS Stoney, mm. right? You know, there's very little Mike really about his tactical yeah. now. He's, you know, not putting two helmets at cover to see if he can trick a batter into hitting or anything <laughs> like that, right? We know that. Everyone's accepting of that. Even so, I didn't think he was a terrible tactical captain. I just yeah. thought he was a very basic tactical captain and i do think some of his other soft skills that you were talking about before i do think that they were better i mean he seemed to have very good relationships with people and kept a very even keel and you know all those mm -hmm. things are really really important because it's a big part of captaincy read mike Brealey's yeah. book you know it's on the, most yeah. of it is or talking about read that. kevin peterson's wikipedia page as well yeah so i certainly think in that case it was fair but even so, it would be intellectually dishonest of us to say that either of us are massive fans of the tactician Joe Root. Yeah, but I'm also I have no problems with being intellectually dishonest. I must confess, whatever whatever people want me to say, I'm more than happy. <laughs> but tactically, yeah, I mean, I feel like he was okay. I don't think there was a great deal of ingenuity there, but I really do feel like the pieces moving around the chessboard are kind of relevant to that because. I suppose one of the things people might say is he was pretty bad at, or, or he, had, he had a few notable incidents with last wicket stands and mm. and England weren't always great at that and it's cost them a couple of times, including recently. But as much as he could get a bit flat with his field and he could put the field out at the wrong time and or forget to bring them back in or, or just release the pressure a little, there was a time where he sort of allowed the bowlers to try and launch some bounces in because Mark Wood had been hit or James Anderson had been hit. As much as that's the case, yeah, you kind of rely on your bowlers to get rid of the number 11 for you. That's their job. What you're really saying is he never really had people who were good enforcers against the tail. It's much easier yeah. to do that if you have one or two bowlers who, who are really good at that. Yeah. You can look tactically static or, or poor when you've got a very similar looking attack doing all the same things. Well, there's only so much you can do for them. And I think that is part of it. There was times when he was... He had a slightly punchy declaration in the first pink ball match England played. And they, oh, sorry, tell you what, they won the pink ball match. The, the, the Headingley game, the Shea Hope game. Yeah. You know, he, he made kind of a brave declaration and it backfired. And, and that showed, at the time, he said, you know, he wasn't going to get stung by that and he was going to keep on. I'm not sure he delivered on that. Probably the most flexible he ever seen tactically was in that Sri Lanka series where they won 3 0 to a Sri Lanka team that was slightly better than it was. And they went so back. Last time we played them, yeah. And they won 3 0. He there was, you know, he played the three spinners. He had he had Moin, Rashid, and Leach, and he and he, he gave them their head. Folks came in. There was talk of total cricket. Do you remember when, it, when that was for about yeah. five minutes, England were playing total cricket? And there was talk of I remember one game, they were going to bat Joss Butler at number three if they batted first. And Ben Stokes at number three, if they batted second, depending on whether he'd had a stint behind the stumps or not. And it felt like there was a little bit of flexibility and imagination in it. And it was a bit jazzy. Butler played a different kind of innings for every time he went out. Like one, he yeah. would reverse sweep. The next one, he'd run down the pits. The other one, he would slog sweep. I remember thinking at that point, and that was when Burns came in, being like, okay, yeah. I, Burns is not going to average 40 in test and cricket. And Keaton Jennings reverse swept his way and yeah. the goal. 
Jennings came in as a specialist, and I was like, great. England seemed a bit jazzy. It was a bit of jazz cricket. It was improvising, and there was flexibility within the team and the eleven, and they had some ideas. And, and just in the way that the South Africa series was the most optimistic time for Joe Root, that Sri Lanka series looked like the most open that he was to doing things differently and relearning how to win cricket matches overseas. And it didn't really see anything like that. Again, it stands out now like a sore thumb, that series, is a real, like, holiday romance of a series, wasn't it? It was just, it, was, it wasn't part of real life. I think, Rory, it's possible to imagine, or to explain, I should say, that he wasn't an amazing captain and that we might think of him as an average captain. But also look at his record and suggest that a collection of the greatest minds on earth mm. couldn't have saved the England team. Like, if one half of the game you fundamentally can't do, I don't know how you expect that. So I think anyone who's saying he's a bad captain, I'm like, yeah, that's probably fair enough. Also, don't really believe that's why he had a poor record. It's because he didn't yeah. have a very good team. I remember saying to you one time when we were getting to, end, to the end of Alistair Cook's reign that he was always supposed to be the captain. Like, that was part of his identity, that he was going to be England captain. And then once he was, it was hard to envisage what he was if he wasn't England captain. And I think when we look back on Strauss we'll think of him as England captain. And I think when we look back mm. on Vaughan, we'll think of him as the England captain. And I think when we look back on Cook, we'll think of him as the England captain. And I think when we look back on Root, we'll think of him as batter. Greatest batter, yeah. That's the way that he's burned into our minds. I think when his career is done and dusted, you'll be like, wow, Joe Root, what? Like, he was a fantastic batter for him. Like, look at all, and you'll, you'll reel off his achievements. And then you'll go, captain in five years too. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're right. That's so perfect. That's such a perfect way of thinking about it. Well, whereas the other guys, once they became England captain, that's how they're fixed in the, in the mind that yeah. they are the England captain. And Atherton as well, you know, played afterwards. Although they all did, you know, to some extent. And, and Nasser Hussain probably was the only one who didn't play afterwards. But he, I mean, you know, he played a short time under Vaughan. But he's the, he was the England captain in your mind, wasn't he? Like, that's who he was. But Root will play another five or six years. Hopefully he'll go back to Australia and get a century over there. But I don't think, well, when he retires, you think, oh, there goes the England captain. You know, like, I think it's there goes Root. He's England's leading run scorer, most centuries, and he captained them for a bit. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the podcast. Nice one. Thanks, Jared. Thank you for listening. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, everything review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. Makunja Banredi is in charge of our video side. Orijoti Senpathy turns the files into video podcasts. And Shubanka Patacharya makes our graphics. Our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.